He says also, man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. It is up to you to give life a meaning. We must understand that this is very much the air of our age, that we each have the right to demand our own meaning for ourselves and our worlds. But in this kind of world, at least Soren Kierkegaard is honest enough to admit that there really is no such thing as meaning. He puts it this way, a fire broke out backstage in a theater and the clown ran out onto the stage to warn the public, thrashing about, warning everyone that there was a fire. The crowd saw that the, there was a clown on stage, thought it was a joke, and they applauded. The clown went backstage, came back out, and he repeated it, and the acclaim and the uproarious applause were even greater. Kierkegaard says, I think that's just how the world will come to an end, to general applause from wits who believe it's a joke. Maybe you have wondered lately if anything matters. I mean, what, what really matters? Who, who cares? Isn't everything just really in vain? You may not know this about Christians, but if you have been a Christian for some time, you surely have experienced that even Christians struggle in their faith. Sometimes Christians struggle with the truths they themselves profess to believe. And that's the case in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a struggling church in Corinth. The church was struggling with immaturity. They were divided. They were a weak church. They were struggling with sexual immorality. Some were getting drunk. They were not taking care of the poor who were among them. But perhaps the most important struggle, the most important and central question that Paul wrote to address to the church at Corinth, he saved for the end of his book and gave the most time. It was the last thing that Paul addressed in his letter, the resurrection of Jesus. Some had come into Christianity. They came into the church and decided to follow Jesus, and yet they brought with them their Greek wisdom and their Greek beliefs about mankind and humanity and about death. Perhaps Jews, too, could barely stand or comprehend the thought of a man raising from the dead. What would be the need for it, after all? The problem was that some in the church in Corinth did not believe that there was a thing as resurrection. That there was no such thing as, that, that not just that Jesus did not raise from the dead, but that generally speaking among men, there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead. And we're going to see this morning that Paul's answer is, if that's true, then basically everything is meaningless. It's all meaningless. If Jesus did not raise from the dead. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. If you're new to us or new to the Bible this morning, don't be ashamed to have this help, those 
big numbers that you see on your pages we call chapters. The littler numbers give us the verse. So we're in the big number, 15. Smaller number, verse 12, just so we can see where we are. Paul says in this letter to the struggling church, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that? Is not this the common understanding among mankind? That there is no such thing as resurrection. At least on the way Paul preached it. Well, mankind is very concerned with the afterlife. We're very curious about it. We are even haunted by it. We are confused by it. Even Christians so often in the West have been swindled into movies and books about death experiences. Why is that? What, what is mankind so fascinated with death and the end of life? I think it's because we know that death is the end. Death is as far as we have really been, as far as we can go. We can go deep down in the ocean, we can go far out in space, but no one's really gone past death. People who die, they don't come back. I remember a study done by Newsweek magazine years ago. They were trying to investigate the, the genuineness of claims of afterlife experiences. So a group of surgeons in multiple hospitals would, would go into rooms where people had been in vegetative states for days or were at the end of life and were maybe in the scenario where near-death experiences are often reported, and they would place objects in strategic places in the room, sometimes messages underneath the operating table and if someone were to have a near-death experience, they would interview them. What did you see in the room? You had never been awake in this room before. Did you see the thing in the corner? Obviously, I didn't say it. That would kind of give it away. We're fascinated with death and afterlife. And we should be. It really is the one problem that is facing every man. Let me encourage you not to be too worried too, too much about traffic. Do not be too worried too much about your job. Do not be too worried too much about who is mean to you. Be not too concerned about the money that you have or do not have. You're going to die. That's a fact. A fact. Do we know what facts are anymore? It's not an opinion to say that all men die. I know Jay Leno has been gone for a long time, but if Jay Leno were to do, you know, walk down the street and ask questions on the street, what is the percentage of people you think will die? I would be scared to know the answers that may come back. What truer fact in the world could there be than that all men and women die? You might even think or feel that it is rude to, to speak this frankly. How, how dare you speak so plainly and so clearly and so coldly? Perhaps it makes you feel uncomfortable. Friends, let us be uncomfortable if we must in order to get to the truth. Face death. In the last two weeks, Colette's stepdad, that's my wife, her stepfather passed away. 
She went to Belmont to be with her mother since we had some family plans that were canceled because of that death. I took my kids to Belton, try to make up some lost time, do some fun things together. One of the things we ended up doing while we were there was going to visit my grandmother's grave. There was going to be a family reunion in Belton that Saturday, and my mother mentioned that she wanted to go to my grandmother's grave and make sure the flowers were fixed, make sure everything was looking good so that family could come visit. I immediately thought about this and thought, this is what we are going to do as a family. Our, my girls and my boys, we will go do this together as a family. Not being able to be there for the family reunion. So I, my parents, and my children drove to the cemetery together in exercise. I was glad for my children to partake in. There was a moment standing there when my mother was tending my grandmother's grave. My wife was in Beaumont at her stepdad's death. And my two daughters were standing there next to my mother, holding flowers, helping her. My grandmother in the grave, my mother and my daughters in line. I had the same thought there that I often have at the cemetery in Belton. Life is very short, and eternity is very long. Life is very short, and eternity is very long. You might think that it is strange to come to a church and hear a pastor talk so long about death. But death is the main problem that Christians and the church are about. It's the main thing that we are concerned. The Bible has the answer for fixing it's a main part of the story from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. At the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of existence, God told Adam and Eve, the first men, man and woman that he created, that if they disobeyed him with their life that he gave them, that they would surely die. And they did. And so they did. And so do we. I mean, why do we die? Why is there death in the world? Why do people keep, stop living? Why is there such a thing as death? The answer in the Bible is that God created us to live. He, he fashioned dirt and dirt and he breathed into its nostrils and it became a man and became alive. And then God created the woman and they were alive. But we have all from Adam to Eve to me and you used our lives for wickedness against God. So it is the only just righteous punishment of God that we would die. Having used our lives for wickedness. That's the end of the Bible, though. The end of the Bible deals with death. Revelation chapter 21 looks to a future time when God will wipe away every tear. And here is the hope for those who are in Jesus. Death shall be no more. If you eat of it, you will die, is how the Bible begins and how it ends is death shall be no more. The Bible is concerned more than anything else in Christ with his coming to help us with death. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. We ought to think about it. We ought to meditate on why we die, why we're going to die, why we deserve to die, being that we are God's creation. We ought to think about it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. 
Solomon in his wisdom is saying, it is better to go to the cemetery and to think about your life than it is to go waste another three hours at the movies being entertained and distracted from reality. Are movies bad? No, do not leave here going. The preacher said movies are bad. It's not what I'm saying. Do you hear Solomon? You can spend your life on Netflix and never think about death. Really, you can watch it. You can be entertained by it, but you're not thinking about it. It's better to go to the house of mourning than feasting because it's the end of mankind to die and the living ought to lay it to heart. Psalm chapter 90 verse 12 and it's like a song that we sing says, so teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. We ought to think about death. We ought to think that our lives are coming to an end and consider what is the plan. I've driven down Main Street, Belton, since I was a child. I didn't drive. I was driven so many times I can't remember. It always strikes me, as it did the other day, that Belton Elementary School is right across the street. Where my father went to elementary school is right across the street from the Belton Cemetery where my father has already purchased his burial plot. On one side of the road, there is laughter and games, chase and screaming and shouting and kickball. On the other side of the road, there is nothing but silent death. Is it not just a short distance from the elementary to the cemetery? Over the years, I've thought about this as a child noticing the school and the cemetery. In college, driving from college to my parents' house over and over to have my laundry done and some food made for me. Elementary cemetery. And now to go visit my parents, I take my children down Main Street Belton with the elementary on one side and the cemetery on the other side. And the time is getting very, very, very short. I think we live in strange times. Not only must we be convinced that there is such a thing as resurrection, we need convincing that there is such a thing as death. Because we refuse to face this reality. And we entertain ourselves into forgetfulness. We don't like talking about it. We don't like to admit it. We almost take it as an offense that someone might mention it and ruin our Otherwise, good day. He would bring up such a thing. But hear it. Death comes for us all. Why don't we like to talk about it? Why don't we accept death? Why do we still get goosebumps? Why are we so haunted by death? Here, I think, is the answer. We do not have a hope, and we do not believe in the resurrection. We don't have a solid answer for what happens next. We don't like death, and we shouldn't because we can't handle it. We, we can't fix death. We can't medicate ourselves out of death. We can't buy ourselves out of death. We, we, we can't contract ourselves out of death. We, 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 we can't get our DNA to get us out of death. Even so many Christians, I think, struggle to remember the importance of the resurrection and the meaningness, the meaningfulness of Jesus' resurrection and our ensuing resurrection if we are united with Christ. I remember sitting in a circle 
some time ago, probably pre-COVID, I don't remember, everything's blurry these days when it comes to the calendar, sitting in a small group of people, one of them was, hadn't been around too much and is not around uh, anymore, and we were talking about the Christian faith and what it means, and the subject of resurrection came up. And I, I or someone else in the group mentioned something about our resurrection bodies, and the individual looked almost stunned as if to, professing to be a Christian, as if to find out that Christians think we're going to raise from the dead. And my answer was, yeah, we do, like normal Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is Christianity. Jesus rose from the dead. And all who believe in him will too for eternal life in the presence of God. You see, Paul is actually shocked not by the the belief that there is such a resurrection, such a thing as resurrection. Paul is shocked that some of you say there is no resurrection. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection? Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Big problem. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Empty, void, pointless. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then all of the meaning, all of the preaching, all of the faith that you have is as meaningless as the best existentialist. It's as empty as the naturalist who don't believe there's even a spiritual existence at all. If Christ raised from the dead, it's all pointless if he did not raise from the dead. The apostles, what Paul is saying, what we preached would be in vain. The apostles preached that all the meaning in the world was in and is in Jesus. In Jesus. They they preached not just historical events. They were not just news reporters telling us that Jesus did raise from the dead. But they preached that all the meaning of the world is in Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed for sinners to save them, to redeem them from death. And that Jesus' death, Ephesians 1.10, that Jesus, his death and his bloodshed was the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. There's not a time, there's not a place, forwards or backwards in history or in heaven and earth, where God's plan was not through Jesus Christ. He told the Galatians that Jesus was born when the fullness of time had come. You you see, there's not a time, there's not a place where God did not act through and toward Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way when he he wrote the church in the, the book of Colossians. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul says our preaching was in vain if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead. 
And they were preaching that everything that exists, everything that was ever created, it gets all of its meaning through Jesus. So when Paul says, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our preaching is in vain, he means we don't have anything meaningful to say about the world at all. In fact, with Jesus raising from the dead, we are preaching a bunch of nothing, and you are believing a bunch of nothing. There's no good news without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, there's no such thing as a gospel. There is no meaning to life and existence at all in the Bible apart from Jesus and his righteousness dying on the cross for sinners raising from the dead. None. The Bible's no good. It's useless. In fact, it will probably more likely and has been used for evil, for domineering if Jesus did not die for sinners and raise from the dead. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, then everything is true in the Bible. And all the world is filled with beautiful and wonderful and terrible meaning. If Jesus raised from the dead, we can trust that Jesus is not a liar. Jesus told the truth, and we can believe everything that he said about everything. As soon as Jesus' disciples first began to realize that he was the Christ and say out loud, Jesus, you are the Christ and you are the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus started to teach them that he was going to die and raise from the dead. After Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ in Matthew 16, it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus made a promise. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to raise up from the grave. That is either a promise made and a promise kept where Jesus is, in C.S. Lewis's words, a liar and a lunatic. That's where C.S. Lewis gets his question from. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. Timothy Keller says it like this, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. There's a seminary leader who makes the same post online every day. Every day. Just think about what you post for a minute. If you compare it, what you see on social media, subtly, quietly, but faithfully, Almost every day, and sometimes the only thing he posts is this simple little sentence. Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about today. Jesus is alive. And that changes everything about today. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything about today. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just an event that happened. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. 
No, it is the event of history. It is the stop to the cycle of mankind where in our sin, following from Adam and Eve, we sin, we make children, we die. We sin, children die. We sin, we die. We sin, we die. And then comes Jesus. He doesn't sin. He doesn't sin. He's perfect. He's God. Then he goes to die on the cross in the place of sinners, absorbing God's wrath and justice and judgment for us, And then the one who didn't sin, the one who died for the people who did sin, he died, but he rose. He died, but he conquered death. He died, but he paid for sins. He died, but he is alive today, this moment. Continue in 1 Corinthians 15. There is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we are testified about God that he raised from the dead. We're blasphemers if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. You can stone us. You can take us to court. Because we testified that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. There's no such thing as resurrection. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If you're If Jesus did not raise from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, the great problem of mankind that we have sinned against God and therefore we die hasn't been broken. It hasn't been changed if Jesus only died. I don't even know if this is a helpful illustration, but it's almost like the resurrection is saying the check has cleared. You ever ever deposit a check on your phone? And it has to take a couple of days. It might say something in your account like deposit processing funds will be available on blank day. Don't get all weird theologically. But in a sense, the resurrection is God, is Jesus saying it cleared. It was paid. Your sins are actually paid for now. You can know and it is certain that it was paid in full because Jesus died for your sins and he went through death and conquered death by death, it says. And the whole point of Jesus' resurrection means that if our faith is in him, if we are united with him through our faith, then we are no longer stuck in our debt and our sins because he died for us. How do we know that our sins are, are paid for? Because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died as the Son of God, as Cal said last week, the Lamb of God, slain for sin. And then he rose from the grave, meaning Jesus laid down his life as the sacrificial sacrificial lamb in order to pay for the sins of mankind. And his raising up from the dead is saying, it is fully, finally, forever paid. And now you can be granted eternal life. By the grace of God through the power of Jesus Christ. What good is a Jesus who leaves us in our sin and leaves us all in the grave with him? The great problem of mankind is that we have sinned and we deserve death as we should. 
What good is Jesus if he did not raise from the dead? Greg Gilbert puts it like this in his book, Who is Jesus? The early disciples weren't interested in just creating a nice religious story that would encourage people and help them live better lives and perhaps provide them with a metaphor of hope blooming out of despair that might help them endure the storms of this life? No. The early Christians wanted the world to know what they really believed, that Jesus had gotten up out of the grave and that they themselves knew that if he didn't really do that, then everything they stood for was empty and false and utterly worthless. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians are pathetic people. But here's the other side of the coin, Gilbert says. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then every human being is confronted with a demand to believe what he said. Listen to that sentence again. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then every human being is confronted with a demand to believe what he said. To acknowledge him as king. To submit to him as savior and lord. And of course, Gilbert says, my friend, that includes you. See, we all need resurrection. Unless something happens unless there is help unless there is some intervention we're going to die and that will be the end can anyone deal with our sins and save us from death jesus did jesus did understand that what it means to have your sins forgiven is not something that you do for god Going to God and having your sins forgiven and having eternal life granted for you is not something that you do quid pro quo with God. You give him something and then he will give you something. There's nothing that we can give God that will pay for our sins. We cannot both die for our sins and raise from the dead to eternal life. We just cannot do that. We, we're dead already. We just die When we go into the grave, we go into the grave and that's the wages of our sin. Our only hope is that Christ would help us. There's an excellent video of Alistair Begg going around titled The Man in the Middle Cross Said I Could Come. A reference to the thief on the cross whom Jesus, before he died, looked to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. But the beginning of the video, Alistair says, How do you think... You are getting to heaven. I don't have his accent. How do you think you are getting to heaven? If I answered that and you answer that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, Alistair says, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he Because he died on the cross for my sins. Because he rose from the grave and so I can have the promise of eternal life. My hope is not that I do anything, but that he has done everything. Oh, friends, today put your faith in Jesus. In him. Don't put your faith in your faith. Don't put your faith and going to church, doing things, and not being as bad as the person down the road. 
Your sin is plenty bad to deserve death. The good news is not just that Christ rose from the dead, but that we would be united with him by faith, that we too will rise to new, eternal, good, pure, holy life, cleansed from sin with God forever. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's our hope. It's not just a fact. It's a hope for us. Sir Walter Raleigh, who named the state of Virginia and for whom Raleigh, North Carolina, is named, by all intents and purposes, seemed to be a bit of a scoundrel in some respects, a treasure hunter. But at the end, it seemed despite his sin, he felt some comfort in God at the time of death. Under the rule of James I, Raleigh was set to be executed for his plot, or his part, excuse me, in the removal of James from the throne of England just after he'd become enthroned. Raleigh was spared, but after his men attacked a Spanish outpost sometime later against his orders, he was again sentenced to death. Brought from Plymouth to London for execution, Sir Walter passed on various opportunities to take an easy escape. Raleigh was beheaded in the Old Place Yard at the Palace of Westminster on the 29th of October, 1618. Let us dispatch, he said to his executioner. At this hour, my fever comes upon me. We've reached the pitch. I would not have my enemies think I quaked from fear. After he was allowed to see the axe that would be used to behead him, he mused This is a sharp medicine, but it is a physician for all diseases and miseries. According to biographers, Raleigh's last words spoken to the hesitating executioner was, What dost thou fear? Strike, man. Strike. Other than being a madman, what could possibly give anyone such confidence when looking in the eyes of death itself. After Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded in the tower, they found his Bible. And these true and striking lines written the night before his execution. He said, even such is time that takes in trust our youth, our joys, our all we have, And pays us but with age and dust. Who in the dark and silent grave. When we have wandered all our ways. Shuts up the story of our days. But from this earth. This grave. This dust. My God will raise me up. I trust. That is what it means to be a Christian. I have sinned. Against a holy God who gave me life. I deserve eternal death. God, in His love for me, sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to die in my place and pay my debt freely and graciously, and to raise from the dead that by my faith in Him I might live again. 
What do we face that we cannot face with courage if Jesus has risen from the dead? How much more meaningful can life be now that we know the creator of mankind, the judge, the sovereign owner of all things, has paid for our sin? What will we lose that we will fret about this week if eternal life is certain in Jesus Christ raising from the dead? Christ raising from the dead is our joy. It's our life. It's our hope. It is our great relief. D.A. Carson says it this way, you are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 57, Paul continues his argument later. He tells the church of this in Corinth. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, word for dying, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That is resurrected. For this perishable, this perishable body must put on the imperishable as Christ did in his resurrection. And this mortal body must put on immortality. You hear Paul arguing there has to be such thing as resurrection. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal parts, mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, Paul says. And the power of sin is the law. It proves we are sinners. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you all praise and thanks for your word this morning. We recognize this is not just the word of men. This is the testimony of your Holy Spirit, your self-revelation, that we might know you, that we might know Christ, that we might have faith that Jesus has raised from the dead, that we might know the immensity of the meaning of our lives the joy that you intend for us, the hope that we have in Christ crucified and in Christ raised from the dead. Father, might that be the hope some, for someone who is here today, maybe for the first time. Have hope that Christ has raised from the dead. Father, might some weary soul discouraged by the sicknesses and the trials, the temptation, the brutalness of life,
Might they be encouraged today that Jesus has risen from the dead. That death no longer has a hold on him. That there is no longer a title and a debt with our name. No death to be paid. The resurrection awaits. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us as we leave this place today. As we take the Lord's Supper, as we sing here, would you help us leave this place with resurrection on our minds and our hearts, with the weight of death and the hope of glory in the resurrection in our minds and our hearts. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.